0: This just in, you were looking at, uh, obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this
1: morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. There is a major incident in lower Manhattan.
0: We just got a report in that there's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City.
2: Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center.
0: We understand that a plane has crashed into the world trade center we
3: have serious news of a major hello everybody and welcome to a very special episode of the weekend superheroes podcast i'm sean today with me we have pat we have darius we have uh, filling in for steve we have u.s navy veteran and possible crazy person david david how are you today
0: i'm doing great hey thanks a lot
3: (laughs) thanks for being here uh pat who did we talk to you last time uh, we talked to a former Scientologist, Stephanie Caldani. She was awesome. Check out the next one. I know we like to have a lot of fun on the show, but today we're talking about one of the most controversial topics in American history, a day that would forever change America and other parts of the world in just a few short, terrifying hours. Election Day? The, <laughs> this episode will revolve around tragic events surrounding September 11th, 2001, and trying to answer the question, could it have been prevented? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody move. Everything is okay. If you try to make any move, you'll injure yourself and the airplane. Let's be quiet. Nobody move, please. We're going back to the airport.
2: Don't try to make any
3: stupid moves. Those are some of the final words of Egyptian hijacker Mohamed Atta on Flight 11, who moments later at 8.46 a.m. would crash American Airlines Flight 11 into floors 93, through 99 of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Um, This, of course, would be followed by Flight 175 into floors 75 through 85 of the World Trade Center South Tower at 9.03 a.m. Flight 77 crashed into the western facade of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Those aboard Flight 93 learned about the attacks in New York and Washington, tried to retake the plane. The hijackers deliberately crashed the plane into the field in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, killing 40 passengers and crew aboard. It's a senseless bullshit, cowardice act of evil, nearly 3,000 Americans' lives just lost uh, inside those buildings. Most of them were inside the buildings. Uh, Could this have been prevented? Did our own national security have the intel and fail to communicate it to the correct people in time? Here to talk to us today about that is former FBI Special Agent Michael Finnegan. He was a special agent with the FBI from 1983 to 2004. Among his career highlights, Finnegan was a member of the FBI-NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force from 1988 to 1993 and served with the Pittsburgh Terrorist Task Force from 2000 to 2004. During his FBI tenure, he received letters of commendation from FBI Director William Sessions, U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, U.S. Attorney Mary Jo White, the EDNY, and FBI Lewis Free. Finnegan won the FBI's Major Case Incident Award, Pittsburgh Division, in 2000 and 2004, and the Law Enforcement Agency's Director's Award in 2003. His work in capturing the Black September terrorist, Khalid al-Jawahi, has been covered on ABC News, uh, MSNBC, and NPR, among other media. Uh, He received his undergraduate degree in journalism and law enforcement from Penn State University and law degree from the University of Pittsburgh. He's been a member of the Pennsylvania Bar since 1983. Please give a big, warm, superheroes welcome to special FBI agent Michael Finnegan. Michael, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. I I enjoy being here. And uh, thanks for that great introduction. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And I know you've written many articles,
3: uh, paper speeches about counterterrorism, but I want to go back. I want to go back to the first possible... Uh, Islamic jihadist terrorist murder in the U.S. Uh, I'm going to refer to the guy. His name is El Saeed Nosar. Are you
2: familiar with him? Anybody know this guy? Um, unfortunately, I'm too familiar with him. Yes, I know him well. What do you mean by too familiar? Um, during the course of 9-11, I was in Pittsburgh, but prior to that, I'd been on the terrorist task force in New York. Uh, when he was arrested for the assassination of Mayor Kahani. He came dressed as a uh, Hasidic rabbi uh, with long curls and uh, Kahani was signing autographs. Uh, Kahani was a notorious womanizer. Uh, He was a Hasidic Jew, but a notorious womanizer. And uh, women were trying to get close to him. And he came up to get the book signed. And when Kahani went to sign the book, he shot him in the face with a 357 magnum uh, he then ran. There were about three hundred uh, Hasidic Jews in the lobby who some raised a voice and they there 's a tradition with them and they, they shout a term which just means basically uh, there 's an intruder or a problem and He ran through the door and he ran right into a, a postal employee uh, who was coming in and he shot him in the hip with a three hundred fifty seven magnum. Uh, he was then shot twice by the postal police and at the end of the block was uh ibrahim Elka brownie uh who, who was his uh co-conspirator in a cab they were both cab drivers and he was waiting for him in a cab and when he shot when he got shot elga brownie looked out of the cab and just quickly drove away and left him on the sidewalk uh to be arrested and then uh he was tried and convicted uh, he wasn't convicted he was not the convicted. murder no of, no he he was represented by uh Um, William Kunzler, a very famous trial attorney who once cross-examined me for about three hours. And (laughs) Kunzler actually got him acquitted um, of the murder, which was witnessed by 200 eyewitnesses, and he was convicted of using a gun uh, in a felonious assault. He was acquitted of murder. Yeah, he was acquitted of the murder.
3: Uh, Fun fact, during his legal proceedings, Nozair largely ignored... Uh, the court, and focused on multiple sketches he made of Princess Diana. That's according to Wikipedia. I don't know. Oh, no wonder he got acquitted. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, He's so, a candle in the wind. So while in prison, he was convicted again, right, as part of the federal, tri- uh, federal trial of a man named uh, Omar Abdel Rahman, or a.k.a. the blind sheik. We'll get into him uh, much later.
2: Um, okay, no more rambling. So so what does this have to do with nine eleven? right? Well, I just, once again, just for a linear view for your listeners, uh, he was convicted while in prison and sentenced to 240 years for the 1993 assault of uh, the World Trade Center. While he was in prison, um, he was still a co-conspirator through the mails, and so the U.S. attorneys Office indicted him, tried him, and convicted him, and uh, we had the pleasure of transferring him from uh, state prison in New York into federal prison forever. Or or 240 years, whichever comes first. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The bastard, you know, they tend to live forever, so he could actually be paroled.
3: Okay, so while he was in trial, while he was drawing up, you know, princesses, the FBI learned that Nozair, Nosair, <laughs> Nozair. Nozair. right. Nozair's <laughs> relatives, quote, unquote, traveled to Saudi Arabia to obtain money to pay for Nozair's offense. And that he, quote, received funds from a wealthy Saudi. Guess who that was? Osama bin that would be Osama bin Laden. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so it was later discovered that Nozair became involved with the Al-Farouk Mosque in
2: Brooklyn. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with this. Al-Farouk Mosque, yeah, with a blind shake. Uh, actually, I've been to the Al-Farouk Mosque a number of times on surveillance. So the I should be a member of the Al-Farouk Mosque. I've been there so many <laughs>
3: times. You have to renew
2: your membership. They called me, actually. He actually, <laughs>
3: leaves, a, he actually leaves a pair of shoes there. <laughs> yeah. It was supported by uh, the Al-Farouk Mosque, of course. It was supported by the Afghan Services Bureau. Uh, the Afghan Services Bureau was established in 1984
2: by the CIA, <laughs> or Osama bin Laden. Yeah, uh, it was funded by the CIA. Uh,
3: yeah, right. The Blind
2: Sheikh was funded by, that, but this is open. This is open source material. But, he was funded by the CIA. But the Af- Afghan
3: Services Bureau was established by Osama bin Laden as well as uh, the uh, father of global jihad,
2: Abdul Azam. That's him. The Blind Sheikh. Okay. Sheikh Drakhman uh, was uh, funded and brought into the United States on a visa by the CIA and funded by the CIA. We literally funded. The Alfred Mosque.
3: Right. But the issue here is that, unfortunately, this information that we just said wasn't found out until 2002 when the Senate Intelligence Committee was investigating intelligence failures prior to 9-11. Is that
2: yeah, correct? and when you say found out, that's a, that's a slippery word. Um, everybody knew, you know. Everybody knew. Honest. Everybody knew. The certainly CIA knew. The FBI absolutely positively knew. Everybody knew. It was an open secret. You just, it was classified, so you couldn't talk about it. There's a huge bureaucracy within the intelligence establishment that, like any other bureaucracy, within a police department, 10% of cops make 90% of arrests. Within the FBI, it's about 5% of the agents make about 95% of the arrests. So you have about 95% of the intelligence community, certainly within the FBI, and the CIA is even worse, who really, it's like a, it's like a parasitic, blood-sucking relationship, and they're, they're really threatened when somebody tells the truth, when somebody points out that there's so little going on, there was so much to be done, and there were so few people putting their shoulder to the wheel. So that's that's why I live. That's why I continue to write. That's why I continue to publish. And we th- yeah. I want to
1: be one of the 95% that doesn't do anything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you already you are, worry. Don't,
3: yeah, <laughs> <are>. don't worry. <laughs> Incidentally, they're paid exactly the same as the other 5%. <laughs> right? All right? right, so this is the first time U.S. was sort of bitten by that name, Osama bin Laden, right? Uh, it, he would be the financier uh, of a hell of a lot more than just that. So let's fast forward to 1993. Uh, Pat, you want to talk about this? Yeah, so uh, that's
1: when I came to know about a, a guy named Ramsey Youssef who came into the country on a fake... Uh, Iraqi passport,
3: uh,
1: and actually claimed political asylum. Um, What's
3: political asylum? Does
2: anybody know? Unfortunately, I do know what political (laughs) asylum is. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's outside the visa system, so you can make direct uh, requests to the State Department. You claim religious or uh, political persecution, and you throw yourself basically on the mercy of the State Department. It really is a charm test. So if you are... A Russian Jew, that's a very high-profile uh, protestation, you know, in Russia. So Russian Jews, everybody got political asylum. If you made it here, you got political asylum. That's fine. Who vouched for you? Who supported Nobody you? Nobody has to vouch for you. You come in, you show your... your in fact, I'm, I'm going to go out and limb here and think lots of non-Jews came to the United States, Russians, and got political asylum as Russian Jews, just like Cubans could come here as and soon we'll as they baseball. put their foot on the land, the drive foot on the land, they got a green card. You know, they were, they were given asylum because of... The communist regime in, in Castro, and we hated Castro back then. You know, now he's our best friend.
3: Got it. 10-4, Pactor. Yeah, open. so
1: what I thought was interesting was uh, he actually brought a friend with him on the trip, and his traveling companion had a very poorly forged Swedish passport. And in his luggage was uh, a bunch of information on bomb-making materials and instructions, and how to lie to INS agents, and a whole bunch of other stuff, um, kind of as a smokescreen for getting him in. Um, But anyway, so he goes to an INS holding facility. It's overcrowded. He's released, goes to New Jersey, uh, sets up there, and while there puts together a 1,500-pound bomb. And he and a couple co-conspirators rent a rider van and drive it into the parking structure underneath Tower 1, I believe it was. Uh, Because you wanted Tower 1. To fall into Tower (laughs) 2.
3: smash into Tower (laughs) 2.
1: Right. They had a... uh, a rubber-coated fuse so that it wouldn't smoke and it would burn longer. Uh, He lit it, got out, got into a car. They drove away, and about, I think, 20 minutes later or so, uh, all hell broke loose.
2: You know, one thing uh, you didn't mention, it's in the trial. Uh, Judge Murphy, the federal judge, pointed this out, read it to the court because it wasn't Admitted as evidence, the government uses evidence. But he stacked his bomb with cyanide. Ramsey Yosef, he put cyanide on top of the bomb. I didn't know that. But it exploded. It was so hot that it vaporized the cyanide. But if you remember correctly, the people coming out of the tower, their faces were black with soot. Yeah, Yeah, there were thirty thousand of them. Judge Murphy in the court record said it would have killed thirty thousand people. The cyanide would have killed thirty thousand people if the bomb had responded the way it should have.
1: Wow. Now, and how
0: many people know that unless you read the court transcript. Yeah. Yeah, because it's anti, you know, it's And didn't they say that uh, didn't they say that after the explosion he went across the bridge and he wanted to watch and it didn't go off and he, then he went to turn in his rental vehicle. Oh no, that's that? there
2: was somebody else who turned. It was Salem, a guy that turned in the rental vehicle. Um, but he actually was in the air when the bomb. Okay. Ramsey was in the air. Yeah, he actually used
1: his, yeah. his passport to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, but
2: before he left, by the way, he stayed in Jersey City with a member of the Iraqi mission to the UN who was an Iraqi intelligence officer. When wow. Iraq collapsed, um, document exploitation teams went into Iraq specifically looking for his file folder in Iraqi intel and couldn't find it. The Iraqis had removed it. So people say, you know, there was no connection between Iraq and the. the you World can't Center. prove it, but. Uh, no, he was. He he was. He worked for. Here's what happened. New, Newark in New Jersey. Newark is a separate office than FBI New York. But it was they blew up our building. But then the lead right. came up on in in Newark because the the rental van was returned in Newark. Well, we're supposed to reach out and contact the Newark office and they're supposed well, fuck that. Excuse me. You know, <laughs> that's that's not gonna happen. The building's You're blowing up. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> agents just raced through the tunnel, went up, called the SAC in Newark. By the way, we're going to New you know, we're going to this address. The SAC in Newark's pissed. He sent people there. Before they got there, when the Newark agents got there, they came up and knocked on the door. This Iraqi employee comes to the door. They say, We're looking for Salem. They said, Oh, he 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 left. Where where would he be? Uh, I don't know. Well, uh, did he have any storage facilities? Yes, he did. He had a storage facility. Here here's the key. All the agents. This is a terrible thing to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. Every single agent jumped in the car and raced to the storage facility. And they This guy got a cab, went to the airport. The Iraqi intel agent is in the air, gone. Wow. Nobody thought to stick around just in case. That's not in the movie, is it? (laughs) 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 They left that out of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) When I write the script, that'll be in the movie. (laughs) The cyanide was supposed to kill how many people, you said? Judge Murphy said it would have killed 30,000 people. Minimum 30,000 people would have died trapped in the stairway.
3: So it only ended up killing six people, uh, you know, thousands injured, but only killed six people. But the, the youngest was a 36 year old woman pregnant. It, it seven killed months, six seven people months pregnant.
2: It formed, it, and you can cut me off anytime you want. It formed a, it blew up through six floors of the building, up to the ground floor. Yeah, through, so through six feet-thick concrete. Absolutely. (laughs) So the FBI shows up, and the NYPD says, it's a a transformer explosion, it's not terrorism, because they want the crime scene. Well, that transformer must have been Optimus frickin' Prime then. (laughs) The the FBI says it's... Well, the cops... In the FBI, there's only 1,300 agents in the whole office, and any one time, you might get 500. The NYPD had 40,000 police officers. They literally took the crime scene over. Big pissing match between the bosses, and they finally said, we have NYPD cops on the task force... So they said, you're going to consult the FBI. The FBI is in charge of this, but you have all the bomb tech experts. You're going to consult. Well, he we had a bomb tech expert on my task force. So they, they put a light down in the, in the tunnel. They put a light down in the hole. They tie this guy up. I could give you his name, but I probably shouldn't. They tie this guy up on a rope, and they let him down. He's got a torchlight, and everybody's watching to see what happens. And they let him down very slowly. And two tugs means bring me up. Right." So he goes down to the ground floor, he turns his light on, and he looks around, and he's looked for forensic evidence, and he hears this. Can you pick that up? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he hears, only by a 1,000. The bomb had blown in the basement of the Millennium Hotel, which was next to the Trade Center, and blown in the meat locker for the restaurant, the Millennium Hotel. It had also blown into the West wow. River. The West Side River runs right along the Hudson River. I, I see where this is going. So when he turned around, there was a six-foot wall of engorged rats who had gotten in oh, wow. and eaten the meat, and blood was dripping from their mouth, and they were snapping their teeth. He pulled that rope 31 times. <laughs> <laughs> up, 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 up. Not in the script. That's not, not in the movie. That's
0: not on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not on YouTube.
3: So we're going to dial it back. Uh,
0: uh, only because hold on.
3: One,
1: one more interesting yeah, fact about you, Ramsey Youssef. Uh, do you know who his uncle is?
3: Was, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. KSM. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right.
1: Who it turns out good friends with... Was, uh, of yep.
3: course. But... But before... Uh,
1: but, again... they say there's no connection
3: between no ties, no Iraqi ties okay, so, which blows my mind CNN reporter Peter L. Bargan he wrote this, we looked at that rather extensively, there were no ties to the Iraqi government Uh, in sum, in the the mid-90s excuse me, the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York, the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York the CIA and the NSC and the State Department had found no evidence implicating the Iraqi government in the first trade center attack.
2: Right.
1: I mean that's almost all the acronyms.
2: Not. But for people to say there's no ties, that's a political statement. That's a political enemy saying to the president, you can't prove beyond the shadow of a doubt. Now when the when, when planes flew into the on on Pearl Harbor, when planes flew into Pearl Harbor, did people put out nets and rope it off and do a forensic looking for evidence? Oh, These no. fucking people declared war on us. They blew up our building. They didn't try to kill Mayor Kahani. They didn't kill Mike Finnegan. They're pissed at me. They tried to destroy our country. We created. A, we treated it like a crime scene. We we collected evidence instead of we, like a war. Exactly. Yeah. And we got thirteen hundred agents. We have five hundred fucking agents with screens over in Staten Island, taking every sifting, every ounce of the rocks that fell down from the World Trade Center, sifting it for evidence. And then, they find, like, a passport. They find a passport for a yeah, part of a passport for a, a hijacker. Passport. You know? Always find a passport. And that's a huge thing. They call a press conference and the <laughs> SAC steps in front of the microphone. Now, the guy's dead. He meant to die, right? And we have almost 3,000 people died. Like, 2,200 people died in the World Trade Center. And 1,700 of those families didn't get a single cell of, a, of their loved ones. They didn't find a single cuff link, they didn't find anything. So the SAC calls a conference that they found a passport. That's a political statement. He wants the news to focus on him, then ABC, NBC, CBS holds up and says, this is proof. We don't need proof. I saw the planes fly in the building. I don't need any proof. I'm gonna hunt those people down and kill them. And that's the only thing that that we can do.
3: So in 1997, Osama bin Laden said during an interview that he did not know Yusuf, uh, but claimed to know. I trust him. Claimed to know his uncle, right? Khalid uh, Salah Mohammed. Uh, he, was, he was the mastermind behind, you know, uh, September 11th attack. Uh, so according to the 9-11 Commission, Khalid Salah Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Thank you, Sheikh Mohammed, excuse me. Uh, said under interrogation that Yusuf was not a member of Al-Qaeda and that Yusuf never met bin Laden. Did yeah, you well.
2: Do you agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny you should mention this. I was at his birthday party. I, I, <laughs> he was being interviewed while the CIA was holding on to his balls and they were waterboarding him. <laughs> he would say anything. He would say he was a giraffe. You can't <laughs> take his words. He was, he, he was a giraffe. He was waterboarded 286 times by the CIA. All
3: right, let me get this straight. He wasn't
2: a giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> he would have been better off as a giraffe. He would have stretched longer. Here's the deal. Here's the deal.
0: You're a dirty man. Here's the
2: deal. Post 9 11, the CIA never, I'm not making this up, they never interrogated anyone ever. That's not their job. So the CIA is never interrogated. They never interrogate anybody. They never arrest anybody. It's not their job. They don't even, in their, in their, in their constitution, they have to operate outside the continent of the United States. Right. And they coerce people. They try to buy them off. Or they might, you know, some people say they'll kill people, assassinate people. But there's absolutely zero reason for them to take somebody to custody and question them or interrogate them. So they had nobody to do any interrogations. When they began catching the terrorists with FBI information, they insisted on doing the interrogation. But they had nobody who could interrogate. So they hired paramilitary operators. Some from other countries, some from our country. Who, by the way, had never arrested anybody, had never interrogated anybody. So they said, I know. We'll waterboard them. Because, you know who gets waterboarded? Special forces. They all get waterboarded. It's part of the escape and evasion. They get captured, and they get waterboarded. And they get asked questions. So they go... Shit, they do it to us, we'll do it to them. So they waterboarded Khalid Sheikh Mohammed like two hundred and eighty six times. And he would do anything. He'd say anything. You will do anything to make the pain stop. Uh, so they, they had they had no expertise, they had no background. And so when you quote something from an interview of you have to take that with more than you have to take it with a beach loads full of salt. You know what I mean? They they just there's no validity to their interviews. And at one point the FBI just broke off would not cooperate because they were torturing these guys and Torture—it's called it's some called confabulation. You torture somebody; they're going to tell you the truth. You grab—you know—you grab them by the nuts, and you're torturing them. They're going to tell you the truth. But when they're out of truth, and you keep torturing them, they'll tell you whatever you want to. They hear. confabulate. They're going to make stuff up. Yep. And if you stop torturing them and polygraph them, they'll pass the polygraph because they've convinced themselves in their mental state. To telling you the truth, I want to
1: talk about an informant that the FBI had uh, about a year before the World Trade Center bombing. Uh, it was an Egyptian former Egyptian army officer named Ahmad Salem. Um, from everything that I can tell, he was like God's gift to the FBI. He told them about the bombers. He helped them identify who it was. Before you know, out of hundreds of people, he even offered they were going to. Replace the bomb materials with harmless materials until an unnamed FBI supervisor told him not to.
2: Uh, this is almost correct.
1: <laughs>
2: hey, I read this over the it.
1: internet, so <laughs> it's almost correct. Almost <laughs> correct
3: is actually better than I was
2: hoping. If it's for. on the internet, H- this is a horrible story, I have to tell you. I mean, I have to <laughs> tell you. It's not secrets. Secret. You it's haven't told it. a nice one so far, so just go for it. Salem so was in the group. He'd infiltrated the group. They were planning the bombing. And I'm going to use his name just cuz he's my hero. His name is John Aniseff. His name comes up again and again in terrorism investigations. He's he's in my estimation the best counterterrorism agent in the history of the FBI. John Aniseff recruited Salem. Uh, by the way, Balls Balls and Walls guy. Um, I got a million stories about him, but just And grew million up in stories about Balls for the Yeah. <laughs> grew up in Brooklyn tough ass guy. <laughs> he has him and his supervisor is a dick. His Anasef's supervisor is a dick and I won't use his name. More than once or twice. And <laughs> his name was Dick, which is weird. <laughs> yeah, he's one of those guys who Dick never has arrested anybody. He's a former state cop out of Jersey, but he, and he joined the Bureau for Management Experience. So he's not getting his hands dirty. So he gets possessed with the idea that Salem is hoodwinking the FBI. That we're, we're paying him 1200 bucks a month to mix in with this group, and he's hoodwinking the FBI. Salem's the informant, correct? Yeah, so talking about Salem. So the supervisor orders Anisef to close Salem. Now Salem says when they parted, Salem said he told him they're gonna put a bomb in the World Trade Center someday and blow up, blow it up. Now Anisef said that never happened. I asked him personally He said that never happened. But Salem said but it certainly was reasonably foreseeable. I mean they were terrorists, they were organized terrorists, Don't they were linked to Iraq. Um, They were Islamic extremists. You know, you had Nasser, you had Elka Brownie. Uh, Nasser shot by now. He had shot uh, Kahani, you know, so you knew they had terrorist intentions. So it was reasonably foreseeable they would do it. But he was ordered to shut him down, to close him down. Now the bomb goes off, and I I was in New York when it happened. And as a matter of fact, I was not in New York when it happened. I was working a case, and I just arrested a guy who was a fugitive for 17 years, the black September terrorist guy. And for my reward, I got to go home to Pittsburgh for a weekend because I'd been working like 17 months. And I took my wife and two kids to Pittsburgh. And I was sitting in, in, in my sister Maureen's house watching TV when I saw the bomb go off. And my pager went off. We had pagers then. Back to work. They said, you got to go. You got to go. So I had to leave my wife and kids, and I drove back to New York. And when I got back there, Anisef had been ordered to recontact Salem, <laughs> the informant, and open him up again. But maybe he knew what he was yeah, talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, now wasn't Salem uh, the blonde sheik's like right hand man for a while?
2: Yeah, he worked his way in. It, 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 that's the pathetic thing about it. When you look at what actually happened, these this wasn't you weren't you weren't even like working against the mafia. I mean, Salem had no backstopping. They never saw him before. They didn't know him. It turns out he he was a I think he was a captain in the uh, in the Egyptian he army before he came to the United yeah. States, so nobody did backstopping to see if he was an a, an Egyptian agent. They just brought him right in and made him a conspirator. These guys should have been penetrated long ago. You know what I mean? But it's just the kind of thing that management stepped should that never should have happened. We should have done a raid and seized the first bomb, and then we would have got Ramsey Yosef as well. Um, but it's it's you know you say like luck was not on our side, but it's it, it more than that when you look at the the events that occurred, it's a failure, it's an intelligence failure, a systemic intelligence failure, and it's time and time again, they leveraged our weaknesses, our intelligence failures to succeed, because these weren't master terrorists. You know, like, and I always point this out to my students when I lecture. When they took Bin Laden down and killed him, they found 300 or 400 pornographic, CDs, and there's a picture that they got that they took out of his room and he's sitting with a blanket on the floor and He is a chair in front of him And he has a little black and white TV on the chair and the blanket is wrapped over his head and he's curled up watching the TV But it doesn't show what's on the TV. I know what was on the TV, you know, the master terrorist was a masturbator <laughs> Great fisherman. I said well, when that. this happened, I said they have to take they yeah. have to take these CD titles and make them public. Do you know what would happen? Every single man, Christian, Muslim, Jew, would watch every single one of those <laughs> pornographic videos. They all but, had to return them. And, and now, yeah, it's, for yeah, research. Before, before, remember before, to rewind. That, for yeah. And now, instead of having this mythic figure, you know, of leading the great uh, rebellion, it's just a weak man. It's a man with three wives who's still not getting laid enough <laughs> not to be <laughs> masturbating to <laughs> pornography. Yeah, so, three wives with him.
1: So... So just to take the other side for a little bit, um, you know, it's easy to say in retrospect everything could have been prevented. You know, intelligence obviously becomes more clear after the fact, but I feel like in this instance it was clear enough before... It still could have been prevented. Yeah,
2: I guess I didn't make it clear. I, I I think that there's a structural weakness in our intelligence system that they continue to exploit and will continue to exploit. Still, okay. Yeah, and it's it's part cultural, you know, it's it's part um, you know, like bending over backwards not to offend Muslims or Muslim nations. This is just nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. I think it? we should offend everyone. You usually do
3: just because of time, I think we've got to move on. I want to talk to now uh about a little fast forward a little bit. I want to talk about able danger uh David, you said you want to mention something about able danger
0: yeah able danger is a it was a defense intelligence agency program it was a it was a clandestine kind of uh, classified military planning effort. It was led by special operations uh, command socom um, and under a directive by the Joint Chief of Staff Chairman, Hugh Shelton, um, what it was, it was, a, it was a metadata program that would take general information and classified information and what it would do is combine it together. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to look for patterns. They were trying to look for the possibility of connecting terrorists with the activities uh, to deter future operations, to see if they could intercept or deter any kind of future uh, terrorist activities. Now, there was a guy who was involved in the DIA. He was, uh, he was a reservist. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer. What had happened was he was a part of this operation. He, he was doing some spy stuff. He was doing some, some, some spook operations over in Afghanistan for a little while, and then they got him involved in this operation called Able Danger. There was an, an awful lot of effort from the 9/11 Commission and and, and different opposing uh, agency operatives who said that uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Schaefer was incorrect with his his assumptions. Okay, um, the problem was is there is a captain, his name was Scott Philpot, who who had worked in the uh, Able Danger program. And he says that the allegations from Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer were relying on recollections uh, that he had had stating that uh, Muhammad Atta was in their profiles prior to 2001. Um, he later recanted those, uh, those uh, recollections, saying that uh, Lieutenant, Commander Schaefer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer uh, was only basing his allegations off of Captain Philpont's information, uh, his recollections. Since he recanted, he says they're actually not even real. There were charts, and these, these actual charts showed the, the photographs of the... Uh, of the
2: those, those charts were made after the fact. That's exactly yeah. what it was. <laughs> they didn't have photographs <laughs> of 9 hijackers on their wall in DIA. Uh-huh. Um, one thing that he leaves out of his analysis is it's a metadata program. That they scan using profiles of what terrorists would do with credit cards, using past cases, using some speculation, using some smart uh, sort of a forerunner of AI. Unfortunately, they did identify um, Ada and a group of others um, in a, in a profile.
3: But he was but not on the chart.
2: He's the, on a chart. The charts they, after they also but identified like two hundred thousand other people who had similar patterns of use of credit cards. Le- Lieutenant
3: Schaefer said that, the, that Otto was on the chart not only on the chart but on the top of said chart with his photo. No. Well before 9/11. I I, 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 don't, I don't I got his book and okay, I just don't believe it. saying that. no as well.
0: Yeah. And the Senate Judiciary Committee says that the chart was different prior to
2: and where would where would he get the picture? Uh, Instagram. Instagram. Oh, <laughs> 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 Where would he get Snapchat? a photo? Did he go and take it personally? Uh, no, obviously did, not. Did he go to person? Egypt? Was he at the flight yeah. school? There were no photos of Ada that I know of exist prior to 9-11 except his driver's license mm-hmm. photo, which we used after the fact. Uh-huh. Then reason. why
0: did the de- why did the Department of Defense uh, deny them the opportunity to provide testimony? There we go. There we go. You
2: asking me? Yeah. yeah we sure, sure. Sure.
0: I'm not the Department of Defense, but if I were the Department of Defense,
2: like it. it looks bad. It looks bad for the Department of Defense, and they're the military, so they do whatever they want. They say, shut your mouth, and they destroy his records. But you can generate those records easily. You just do the exact same searching, the exact same criteria on metadata, you'll generate the exact same records, and you'll get the same set of multiple defendant lists. You'll get 200,000 people who fit the profile. Back to
3: Kurt Weldon, who you can't stand for some reason, uh, he also said that the Able Danger was prevented from passing the information onto the FBI, as well as they alleged the intelligence concerning Able Danger was provided to the 9-11 Commission and then ignored. What are your
2: thoughts on that? Well, I don't, I'm not in an administrative position, but the 9-11 Commission has a lot of information. And I, in fact, I, if i were given an opportunity, I'd like to do a nutshell of testimony of the 9-11 Commission. But I, they were the, ulti, the penultimate political body and that they absolutely, and by the way, both commissioners, both lead the Republican and Democrat, both want another 9-11 commission. They say they were lied to, and they were lied to, and information was held back from them. Uh, there was no intent or purpose to get to the truth. Um, there was one thing you agreed upon before 9-11 commission, and it was this. If one of the political parties is tagged with responsibility for 9-11, they will never, ever have an elected majority or a presidential bid. For the foreseeable, until people forget nine eleven, and so they made an agreement beforehand. We're we're not going to pin this on one party. I mean, Bill Clinton was president for eight years before nine eleven. George Bush was president for eight months before nine eleven. He was finding his way around the White House. He didn't know jack shit. He kept the same CIA director. He kept the same intelligence czar as as Clinton. But he, who are you going to blame that on? George Bush, who couldn't find his ass with both hands, or Bill Clinton, who was a Rhodes <laughs> Scholar, who carefully, carefully followed this meticulously. And, um, and I wouldn't blame it on either one, by the way. Um, like I said, I would blame it on the intelligence community. The intelligence community failed. The, the problem I have is it's the exact same structural problems with the intelligence community, which is going to allow the next wave to occur, and it will definitely occur. And it will be and, and you heard it first, it will be commercial aircraft uses weapons this time piloted by the pilots who were hired by the airlines. They, they've they've converted, we know two at least, commercial airline pilots who were recruited by ISIS. And um almost certainly Flight Three Seventy, Malaysian Airline Flight Three Seventy. No. Um, was almost certainly an ISIS operative. Darius! Get- we got to talk about somebody very important.
3: His name is George Tenet. Give us the five fast facts.
4: All right, George Tenet, fast facts. Clinton had little to no intel or law enforcement experience when appointed by Clinton in 1995. Two, served as a senior director of intelligence programs for the National Security Council from 1993 to 1995. Three, was a director of the CIA from 1997 to 2004. Four, released a book in 2007 called At the Center of the Storm, My Years at the CIA, where he claims that we repeated CIA warnings of terrorist attacks before 9-11 were ignored. This is actually giving me the chills reading this. But <laughs> anyways, five, testifies before the 9-11 Commission saying that he, the CIA's failure to stop the 9-11 terror attacks haunts all of us to this day.
2: Mike Mike. When George Tenet left the CIA, by the way, he received the Freedom Award, the highest award given um, by the president to a civilian. Uh, he received the Presidential Freedom Award when he re- when he resigned from the CIA. And he went to work for a, um, a bank in New York City and it's a boutique bank, as they say in the banking industry. And its specialty is uh, you can't get a major motion picture financed without this bank's uh, okay. And one of the things the bank does, of course, is review scripts very carefully for uh, financial wow. viability. Imagine that. Or for any uh, 9-11 scripts that might contain the truth. So, just to screw with them, I wrote a script on 9-11 and include all the facts. And I posted it on Amazon, on Amazon uh uh, author's page. So I have an Amazon's author's page and I wrote The True 911 script and I posted it on Amazon. Guess who went to see it? <laughs> Ge- Georgetown went to go I, see your th- Exactly. I only had like I I've, I've posted about 15 scripts and I have I have a huge fan base of about three people. One of them was my mother and she died. So I'm down to two people. <laughs> and, and the other ones are me and Sean. <laughs> yeah, but but that particular script was viewed anonymously six times. And I'm just going to go out in the ledge and say, mm-hmm. somebody connected with that boutique bank is I-fucking-my-script. You, know? <laughs> you, you think they'll greenlight it? Yeah. <laughs> I think I got a better chance of
3: you know, pitching in the World Series. <laughs> Special Agent Michael Finian, you've been fantastic. We have to talk about your paper. Um, so I just want to, just from the very start, just get these uh, characters into play. So Louis Free. Was the director of FBI? Yes, he was. Okay. In the year two thousand, um, he asked for eight hundred and ninety-four counterterrorism positions. Received four. He asked for three hundred eighty-one counterterrorism, or, excuse me, three hundred eighty-one million in counterterrorism money. Received seven point four. Correct. Right. Okay. Uh, you mentioned they had old, antiquated equipment. Now this isn't opposed to the the CIA, right? They had full access to the FBI investigations with literally. No responsibility to pass that on to the FBI.
2: They had agents stationed on the terrorist task force when I was in New York, and nobody ever in their wildest imagination would go, you know what, you can't send that communication. We can't share that information with the CIA. You'd be fired. You'd be fired. Plus, there's no reason. The CIA, they don't have any assets inside the United States. They can't do anything for us.
0: But it was opposite. The CIA wouldn't transfer information to the, the CIA
2: FBI. lived in fear that the FBI— Well, George, and, and, George and, and, Tenet was a political animal, and he was trying to increase funding, as was the FBI. And his thought was—and he even said it. I want to get enough—I want to float everybody's boat. I want to make the CIA the premier intelligence agency. I want to float everybody's boat. So he became best friends with the Israelis and best friends with the Saudis. And meanwhile, he was like the fat kid on the block who thinks he's friends with the football players. You know, because they. Because he his does lunch. their homework. Exactly. He does his homework. They take his lunch. That's what the relationship was.
3: Okay. So uh, they had close, uh, the CIA had close liaisons with foreign intelligence. They were to capitalize on the uh, imbalance, basically, the, uh, the drop off between the CIA and the FBI uh, to, to basically just exploit FBI intelligence right out the gate. So uh, this brings me to, to your paper. And I want to talk about th- this man you wrote about. And his name is Mohammed
2: Alawahi. I'm an al A British-born Saudi terrorist, correct? 21 years old. Ah, some say he was born in Britain. Um, he was certainly raised in Saudi Arabia. They might have lied about his background. But, yeah, some say he was born in Saudi. He's a Saudi. He was
3: appointed by bin Laden, right, to blow up the U.S. Embassy in Kenya. What was the original plan there? He went, to,
2: he went to Afghanistan to be a jihadi, and he said he wanted to die in America. And bin Laden said, well, you'll die a jihadi, but you won't die in America. I'm sending 50% you. Yeah, I'm sending 50%. Yeah, I'm sending you to Kenya. You're gonna And the Kenya, by the way, the, the, the teams they set up, and I, I talk about the, the structural problems within the American intelligence community, they actually based some of their organization off our original Office of Strategic and Services, OSS. Um, they, had a, they had a surveillance team on the embassy that watched coming and going to make sure they get as many employees as they could inside, and they had a photographic team to take photographs, and then they had an operational team, and none of them knew each other. So they didn't stay in the same hotels. They didn't know their wow. names. And so when the operational team rolled in, they were given the photographs, given the surveillance logs, and they were told to operate on that. And he was the operational team. So he came in to Kenya, but he's 21 years old, and he gets hooked up with, like, a 40-year-old driver. And they both – they live in he – he was from a very wealthy family, O'Wali. but the driver was not. Most of them weren't. And, and – Bin Laden, by the way, paid Saudis more than he paid Sudanese and Algeria. He was the ultimate racist. He paid Saudis much more than he paid anybody else because he had a favorite, you know, that was his his favorite brand. But when he showed <laughs> up, they said, your job is to drive up to the embassy and you, you got a pistol, and you walk up to the front desk, you point the pistol at the security guard and you say, lower the vehicle bearer because by now the State Department employed vehicle bearers. And then the driver was supposed to drive into the embassy in front of the courtyard, but on Zawahori, the number two guy had stipulated always before he detonated bomb, pull a pin on a grenade, throw it in a into the courtyard
3: grenade. a stun grenade, just a it can be any grenade. Anything. Yeah, they used okay. ballistic grenades just, in the past. I have three sources to- said this was a stun grenade to not just, just to, to bring, blow, just just to to bring, bring people, people bring to the attention. window. Bring yeah, attention. you
2: want to bring people to the window because the glass, when the truck bomb goes off, the glass will cut carotid arteries and blind people. You you get much greater reap. You reap a much greater benefit. And so his job was to just pull the gun, get the barrier down, the guy was going to try it and he's going to pull the it, and then he goes to heaven. How well did that work out? Doesn't big problem suicide operations can't rehearse. The guy pulls <gasps> up and by the way, the, the Al Qaeda, they're not fools. They've had in the past where people don't pull the trigger. I mean, they don't push the button, right? Right. So in most cases, there's a dead man switch. So the, the guy, uh, in this case, the truck driver literally is defecating himself. You know, he's 44 years old. He's going to heaven. Or he thinks he's going. He, I hope he thinks he's going to heaven. He's waiting for the very vehicle barrier to go on. Or while he jumps out of the truck, he's 21 years old. He's a virgin. He's never had sex. But he's going to meet 11 virgins in paradise. He walks. So. He's waiting for his virgins, 72. He waits for his virgins. He goes up to the desk. He reaches in his pocket, and he forgot his gun. <laughs> he left his gun in the truck. So he puts his finger in his coat, and he points it at the Kenyan guard. Oh my god! And he god. says, Fake lower gun. the vehicle barrier. And the Kenyan guard says very clearly, nope. that is your finger, man. He says, what? <laughs> what are you doing? He says, lower the vehicle barrier. I'll shoot you. And he goes... That is your finger. I am calling the Marines. Say a Marine security guard inside, and he picks up the phone, and now he doesn't know what to do. And he turns around and he looks at the truck driver, and the truck driver is literally defecating. We know he's shit himself, and he reaches in, he pulls the pin on the grenade, and he throws it over the wall of the embassy. It goes off. It doesn't kill anybody, and he starts to run. And he later says, "Oh, he thought he was gonna outrun the Kenyans." Allah whispers <laughs> to him, "You will die in America." So he gets to the truck, and now the truck driver, who's sweating profusely, blood, is waiting for him to get in the truck so he can try to approach it, and he runs right past the truck. And the truck driver detonates the truck. Two things happen. One, next to the embassy is a, um, a U.S.-built facility for Kenyan girls to become secretaries. And when the grenade went off, they all come to the window.
1: So they're the ones that
3: get it.
2: Mm.
3: Uh, oh, jeez. No. Oh,
2: They're blinded and murdered in large numbers. 400 people die, I think. Most of them are young girls, secretaries. While he runs, and like the devil, always takes the of his own, the bomb blast, which is just a wave, hits him in serendipity. He's on a dead run. He might be 50 yards away. Lethality is 100 yards. He's definitely, he should be dead. It hits him, picks him up, and rolls him. Rolls him like three or four times and then throws him on the ground. He spins out on the ground, scuffs himself up, gets up, runs about 50 yards and falls over, and they take him to the hospital. So now the FBI responds with 100 agents. They send 100 agents on a plane. If I was in New York, I definitely would have been. I had just gotten out of the city. They send 100 agents to New York, and they have John Innesoff, a guy's name I mentioned before. John, it's definitely a bromance. I love you, man. He gets sent <laughs> there with the team, and he's been, he's been supervisor now, I think, three times and busted three times for dealing with headquarters, and he gets put on the outer perimeter. So he's, he has a subgun, and he's outside the perimeter of the hospital guarding the perimeter, and the, they call them uh, Jedi Knights in some places. They're the guys who, uh, <laughs> when the supervisor stops, their nose goes halfway up the ass of the supervisor in front of them. You know, <laughs> So they, the Jedi Knights goes into the building, and they, they interview a Wally who's in bed, and a Wally's been trained in counter-interrogation. It's not great training, but he's been. He's told exactly what to say and what to do. So he says, "I'm a nut merchant. I sell nuts. I'm here on business. I'm walking by the embassy. I want to get a visa." Boom! You know, the bomb goes up. I've done nothing wrong. And he studies their belt buckles, you know, because people change clothes and come back in during interrogations. They usually don't change their belt buckle. They usually keep the same pants on it. So he's looking at boots. He's doing exactly what the agents know he's doing because he's been trained. And they're not getting anything out of him. So one of the supervisors says. Why don't we give Anisef a shot? And they go, no, Anisef's an asshole. Uh, He did the thing with Salem, remember? He closed Salem. When we told him to close Salem, he blew up the fucking building. He had to open Salem. He became the hero. We had to bust him three times off the desk. He won't listen to the Super Anyway, this goes back and forth, and they finally say, well, he knows so much about terrorism. Why don't you just give him a shot? So reluctantly, they go out and get Anisef, and they bring him into the room. And he's in the hospital room by O'Wally's in a private room and he walks in and a Jedi are on the bed. And 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 I hope I'm not getting any secrets away here. I know I'm not to the enemy. Uh, he says to uh he says O'Wali, um, have you had a chance to pray today? And O'Wali says, No. He's kind of surprised. This is not part of the anti... It's not know. the playbook? Exactly. This isn't part of the counter-interrogation training, you know? He says, no, I haven't. So, Anasaf turns to the to the Jedi and says, you guys are going to have to wait in the hall this man needs to pray. They are pissed out of their minds. You know, they, they have definitely <laughs> been co-opted by this guy, and now they're stuck because they invited him in. Reluctantly, they say, we're going to be right outside that door. As if they're going to protect John, you know, from this guy's busted up from a bomb <laughs> explosion. Right. So, he he lays till these mutts get outside the door. He takes the pillows off of Wally's bed. He puts them on the floor. Very gently, he picks Wally up, sets him down on the floor very softly, and then rolls him over to his knees so he can pray and put his head down on the floor and touch the pillow. And so he prays five times east. And then John very carefully lifts him up and puts him in bed. And then John says to him, you know... These people have been asking a lot of questions. He says, I have a question for you. He said, what do you think about Saeed Khatib? Now, Said Khatib is an author. He's an Egyptian author. He was hung in 1960 in Egypt. He is the favorite author of Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. He founded the Muslim Brotherhood. He's one of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood. They hold him up as their idol. Rest assured, Owali had read this guy and is stunned that this white, FBI agent from New York asked him about Said Kitab. And he says, I have a question. He said, when Kitub was in America, now he knows he's read them because Kitab wrote a book about visiting America. He said he could smell sex. He said, he said he could smell sex when he walked in the city. And in a while, he said, Well, they're very sinful, you know, they're very sinful in America. And they, they, it's, anyway, he engages them in this long conversation about Said Kitab. And then they talk about some other authors and they're talking back and forth. And then finally, he says, you know, there's somebody we haven't talked to about. And in the hallway are the agents cooling their heels, and they can't hear, and they're pissed. And he said, we haven't talked about Osama bin Laden. And when he says it, a while he pulls back, literally pulls back in bed and puts his head back like this. And John says, for the record, he has no idea why, but he just puts a pen in his hand gives him a piece of paper. He says, write the phone number that you called immediately after the bombing. And for reasons nobody knows... He wrote the number, and I wrote it in my paper as being the most famous number in the history of terrorism. It's 9671-200578. and it's the number in Yemen for the hijacker Khalid al Midar's father father-in-law. It was a message board, and they, uh, they literally screwed the United States of America.
3: Up next is a clip from the History Channel documentary, The Road to 9-11.
2: While first responders sort through burning rubble, Officials scramble to determine who is responsible. The answer comes the
0: afternoon of the attack. An analyst runs into us with the manifest of the plane that had hit the Pentagon. And on that manifest were those two names that we had been searching for, al-Hamsi and al midthar And so that clinched it for us. OK, this is the al-Qaeda attack that we had been anticipating.
2: Al-Hazmi Al-Madar, the two Al-Qaeda operatives from the Malaysia meeting. For over a year, members of the CIA had known of their arrival in the US without raising an alarm. As many as
0: 50 people in the CIA had known for over a year that there were two Al-Qaeda terrorist operatives in the United States, and they had not informed me, and they had not informed the FBI.
2: That was Richard Clark. Uh, Richard Clark, by the way, goes on in a subsequent interview and points out that had they told him at the meeting in August of 2001 when the system was blinking red, he's being interviewed by these two young kids from Anonymous. And he said, had they told us at the principals' meeting on August 14th of 2001 that these guys had flown in in June of 2000 and they knew it, he said two things would have happened Immediately, he said, one, we'd have put on an APB, all points bulletin, for arresting everybody who had been identified by then, more than just those two. Because they used their true names and true dates of birth to get, a, to get hotel records to fly. He said, so they definitely would not, something worse might have happened, but that would not have happened. Two, we would open an immediate investigation in the malfeasance of the CIA. You have no your your charter specifically says you cannot operate within the United States of America. It is seen as one of the great intelligence disasters in American history.
0: Well, it was a failure. It was a collective failure. <laughs> but the information wasn't missed. It just wasn't acted upon the right way.
3: Ghost wars. The
0: FBI should have
4: been notified if the FBI had known about the guy from was landing in LA, we would have followed them Marklef. and maybe would have Marklef. arrested them or disrupted them. The 9/11 attack did not have to happen. I can't get it out of my head that it didn't have to happen. This is why I wake up at night. This is why I think about it all the time. My heart is permanently
3: broken. It wasn't a lot. It was close to 3,000 people. Yeah. Now when I read your paper, you know, I loved it. I love the honesty. I love the way you presented it. But I gotta, I gotta admit I was pissed. And I told you I was pissed. Because what you're telling me is that 3,000 people lost their lives on that day. Four planes smashed into several different places because of a nationwide pissing contest between the C.I.A. and the F.B.I. They don't want to share information because they're their own thing going, and to share that information with the F.B.I. would have been below them.
2: Well, I've had a long time to reflect on it, and I'm pretty sure, like I said, they were working in conjunction with other intelligence agencies. I mean, the hijackers were met by Saudi intelligence agents. Um, There were a group of art students, 200 Israeli art students arrested right after 9-11. I mean, people don't like to talk about it. This is why I talk about it. If you you look at their addresses, and it's public source information, they literally went from San Diego, where the hijackers were, to Denver when they relocated Denver. The art students went to Denver and sold art at federal buildings. Um, They were arrested, and there was a quick hustle to get him out of the country. Um, I mean, I don't think, I think the Israelis were surveilling them. The first person to die, you know, was a Israeli intelligence officer, Sariat Moktau. He was sitting right behind Mahalata, and he probably tried to grab him. He had his throat slit. The, the stewardess said she, she thought he was shot. He was arterial bleeding, but his throat was slit. He almost certainly would have killed Ada if they hadn't slit his throat. He was He's a martial arts expert. He was also a billionaire. He had founded Akami Electronics, but he was a major in a Sariat Moktau, which specializes. Well, it,
1: and he's IDF, so Batman. he knows what yeah.
2: he's doing. He specializes in overseas terrorist operations. So he was sitting directly. They were surveilling. So I don't think at that point the CIA had the latitude to give up. For, by the way, we would, have arrested, we would have arrested those art students for espionage. We would have arrested Omar al-Bayoumi, met him at the airport. We would have arrested him for espionage. You can't conduct, you can't conduct intelligence operations inside the United States without the FBI knowing. We would arrest them. We had at that time we had an Israeli Mossad agent in jail since 1985. He was released two years ago. From 1985 until 2014, Jonathan Pollard, who was an Israeli Mossad agent, we arrested him for stealing information from the U.S. Army, U.S. citizen, and passing it on to Israel. So those those people were in jeopardy. If they had been found out, they would have been arrested. And I think, and this is my, this is my. My investigator's heart believing this, and I have lots to support it. I believe that both President President Clinton and President Bush were both briefed by George Tenet. That there's a massive intelligence operation spread across nations, and we're trying to recruit them. And um, we hope it works. But if it doesn't, you know, we can't tell the FBI because they would. We do what we do. You know, you, you arrest people who are right. in the country conducting intelligence operations. Mike, I thank you
3: for showing up. This is amazing. Uh, I wish we had. Six hours to actually cover this.
2: Um, my last question to you. Will it happen again? Um, I hate to do this. I hate to be the person to say this, but it it, it will definitely happen again. I see it. It's very clear what they're doing. Uh, they're recruiting. There's a group of 300 people, 300 commercial pilots in a discussion group showing beheading videos, ISIS beheading videos. Uh, awesome. two of them, Two of them have fled. Two of them were identified. And... Um, there were Air Asia pilots who had flown to the United States. Wanted to train the United States while he was posting beheading videos. So I think they're just going to skip the whole take over the take over the pilots. They're going to be the pilots.
1: Oh yeah, I mean they're already cleared and yeah. get through security. They're going to be the pilots,
2: and it won't be a single plane. I believe Malaysian Airlines Flight Three Seventy. I think the guy jumped. A, I think he jumped. A, the line. I think he acted precipitously and I lay it out. I wrote a book on this subject and I lay it out as clearly as I can what happened to that plane, but I think he jumped the line. I think he jumped the gun and went ahead and took that plane and flew it into oblivion for for uh, religious and political reasons, and I, I lay it out very clearly. But the rest of them, they will act in concert. Remember, 9-11 was planned from 1993. Right. So they're, they're waiting until they get a cadre of pilots who can act in unison, and my guess is they'll attack the 7th Fleet, or they'll attack a nuclear power station, or they'll attack them all at the same time. Big thank you to former Special Agent Michael Finnegan. Thank you so
3: much for coming on and chatting with us. But now it's time to end the podcast like we always do with a little Fact or fact. Hey!
0: Factor right. fucked fact,
3: starting with you, Dasha. The Arabic word jihad literally translates to striving or struggling. False.
2: Factor fucked. That's not a fact. choice. Oh. Uh fuck. That's <laughs> a
3: great answer though. Factor right fucked, fact. Michael. <laughs> True. That is a fact. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, we're over two. There's just yeah. there's options. It's fact or fuck oh. it's like a game. All right, it's time. It all point? right, everybody, time to play <laughs> none of the above. <laughs> uh, seven. Uh, everybody, time to play we'll true win. question mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to play true or false. <laughs> Pat <laughs> Pat play Mike. <laughs> in two thousand twenty-one the <laughs> r- two thousand twenty-one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In two thousand twenty one, the roundabout theater in New York is planning their debut of the Broadway production entitled 9-11, The Musical.
1: I'm just going to hope that's fucked.
3: Fucked. Mike? Um, there's only two options. So, like, just say one. <laughs> F- fucked. It is fucked. Well done. tight, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Gesundheit. laughs>
3: David, the 9-11 commission was established a full 442 days after the attack. Fact or fuck? Fact, fact, Michael. Fact, fact. It is November two, November twenty seven of two thousand. Didn't we That's talk about that, that earlier? Actually, yeah. Darius. One of the many theories <laughs> circulated on the internet of how the towers were destroyed describes in detail how the use of high tech extraterrestrial laser weapons could have been used in the nine eleven WTC attack. Pew, fact or pew, fucked? Pew, fucked, fucked, Michael. <laughs> fact. That is a fact, everybody. <laughs> Of course it's a That fact. was actually my
2: theory. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we call I'm, that termite. I manned oh, those space-based space lasers. Oh, razors. my God. You're m fitting sticks <laughs> out. Three more, and we'll let you go, Michael. Thank you. Dasha, former director of the CIA, George Tenet's parents emigrated to the United States from Greece. Factor fuck, Dasha? Three, two, one. Fucked. Fact. That is a fact, Michael Finnegan, <laughs> Well done. <laughs> Two more. Pat can I have Michael Finnegan go first? In a post I hate
2: getting these right.
3: Pat, in a that's why you went second. <laughs> in a post 9 11 video featuring Osama bin Laden, he stated the US was the US incorrectly guessed the number of hijackers, stating that there was twenty, giggling and hinting at the fact that nine plus, plus eleven, 11 is equals twenty. 20. Fucked. That is fucked, Michael. Weldon. <laughs> Last one goes to you, Darius. Or? I like you. Hey, Mom. My mom's actually on the podcast. Last one goes to my mom. Mom, fact or fucked? I'm sorry, it's your mom. <laughs> it's fact or uh, no screwed. It's, no, it's, or fudge. It's F-U-C-T. It's F-U-C-T is cute. Fact or fudge? Mom, fact or fucked. 15 years after the attacks on the World Trade Center... The remains of 1,113 victims, 40% of the 2,753 who died, still have yet to be identified. Fact. Fact. Michael. Fact. That's a fact. Guys, thank you wow. so much for coming out and hanging out. Big thank you for uh, former special agent FBI Michael Fennegan. Michael Fennegan, you have a book coming out and tell us about that.
2: Uh, I have a book. It's on Amazon. It's called uh, Malaysian Airline Flight 370. Factor or fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the whole title. It's Malaysian Airline 3 Flight 370, um, Espionage, cryptocracy, and what's the third one? Sodomy. Sodomy. That's yeah. it. It's sodomy, espionage, and kleptocracy.
3: I remember that because I spent the night at Terrence's last yeah, night. Yeah.
2: How many How many books <laughs> have sodomy in the title? <laughs> so um, it's based on the uh, a three-year study I've done on Flight 370, uh, uh, looking at the uh, country of Malaysia as well as the pilot, the co-pilot, and uh, his associations. And it's um, it's sort of troubling that um, uh, it, it appears that the uh, that the terrorists may be. Uh, restructuring so that instead of taking over cockpits uh, with armed hijackers they would uh, co-op pilots beforehand and then use the commercial aircraft um, as weapons against uh, U.S. ships or U.S.
3: assets so uh, that's my book guys thank you so much for listening if you want to find out more about us you can find us WeekendSuperheroes.com you can find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, YouTube any other media outlet there is would you love to say goodbye? <sighs> goodbye, America. Oh. <laughs>
2: wow. Pat, say goodbye. Good night, ladies. <laughs> Michael Finning, would you like to say goodbye? I will say goodbye, and, and I'll say one other thing. Um, do yourself a favor. If you're listening to this, uh, Google the name David Carns, K-I-R-N-S. Uh, Staff Sergeant, United States Marine Corps, Staff Sergeant David Carnes, Especially if you're in the Pittsburgh area, it's a, it's a fine story that nobody talks about. So, goodbye.
3: Thank you so much for hanging out, and always remember to podcast responsible.